Welcome to BSD Talk number 64. It's Monday, September 11, 2006. I just have an interview for you today, but before that, I just wanted to take a minute to thank everyone that's been helping me out with this podcast. Even though I'm the only voice you hear during these introductions, there are a lot of people that are contributing either equipment or bandwidth or doing transcripts or just sending suggestions and words of encouragement. So I just want to thank everyone for that. All right, on to the interview. Today on BSD Talk, we're speaking with Jason Thorpe, and I want to welcome you to the podcast. Great, thanks for having me. So just to get started, maybe you could describe a little bit about what you do and how it relates to the BSDs. Well, currently I, uh, I work at Apple Computer. I'm, uh, I'm an engineering manager here for a file system product uh, called XSAN. Um, and while that's not directly related to uh, really what I do the BSDs, I actually have been a NetBSD developer for quite a long time since uh, since back when I was in university, back in, um, oh, I don't know, I guess I started using it back in uh, 93. And what, what attracted you to the BSDs, or NetBSD in particular? I, I went to Oregon State University, and we were actually a... Um, we're actually quite near the uh, what was at the time, at least, the largest Hewlett-Packard campus in the world. And uh, we had a pretty big supply of the old uh, uh, 9,300 series computers, and we ran kind of a mix of operating systems on them. We, we had some running um, versions of HPUX, various versions of HPUX, and we also had a few that were running a version of BSD from the University of Utah called HPEBSD. It was based on 4.3 and had some extensions like NFS and NIS that were licensed from Sun. And so that's kind of how I got started using it. I mean, that's what really got me really interested in, in actually working on, on BSD. And from there, you actually, from what I've read on your homepage, moved on to some jobs that paid you to work on BSD. Yeah, absolutely. So I, that actually started when I, uh, when I was at the university. One of the things that we did is we actually had a, an HP 300 that was serving a large Next software archive. And... One of the things that I did as part of my job, I, I worked for the CS department there, um, in addition to attending university there, was um, I, I basically did some work on the CCD driver, um, which is a, kind of a, a RAID implementation, simple RAID implementation uh, that's in NetBSD, to get it working on, um, on, on NetBSD on the HP 300 uh, way back when. It was something that was part of... 4.4 BSD was really experimental and didn't really work so well in NetBSD and did some work to get that working in NetBSD. So that was, I think, probably my first major sort of paid BSD kernel work. But yeah, after I was uh, done with school, I actually got a job at uh, the Numerical Aerospace Simulation Facility um, that's located in Mountain View, California on the uh, NASA Ames Research Center campus. And uh, I actually uh, went to work there doing NetBSD work. We had uh, a large hierarchical storage management system that we were developing that had been through several generations. It had originally, um, well, at the time I was there, it was running on a convex system, convex 3820, and we needed to move it to a kind of a more modern platform, and the platform that we picked 
uh, was the uh, DEC Alpha, uh, Alpha Server 8200-8400, which was kind of DEC's big iron at the time. And uh, we had a policy of having the source code for everything that we ran there in that computer room. So obviously we wanted to pick something that would be make it easy to have the source code. Um, we could have licensed digital Unix, but um, we actually chose to use an open platform because we were interested in sharing some of this file system work we had done. So we actually did a lot of work to port NetBSD to the, to the Alpha Server 8400. The original groundwork had been laid by Chris Damatriou at Carnegie Mellon when he did the original NetBSD Alpha port, but we did a lot of the work to actually port it to the big uh, Alpha Server platforms. And the, uh, there was quite a big file system and uh, a networking project that came out of that. So we, we touched a lot of pieces, uh, both uh, you know, really the network stack, the VM system, device drivers, the SCSI infrastructure, Lots of lots of different stuff, uh, and and the way that the system worked is that um, we had a large tape library that was connected to the system, and the file system would transparently migrate data from the disk to the tape and, and back. Um, the sort of catchphrase for that now is information lifecycle management. We call it HSM uh, for hierarchical storage management. And then uh, we did a lot of work on the TCP/IP stack also to get that data quickly over to the Cray supercomputers um, over a, uh, a networking infrastructure called Hippie which is not really in use anymore, but it was a big uh, uh, 800 megabit per second parallel network with very thick copper cables. So <laughs> that, was, uh, that was the work I did there. Um, it was pretty interesting. And after there, you moved on to, I guess, a fairly well-known BSD company. Well, yeah. So actually, in between those, a bunch of us uh, decided to leave NASA, and we went to uh, a company called Zembu Labs, which... I don't think it's the company you're referring to, but at Zembu, we did a lot of NetBSD work as well. Um, we actually had some uh, network infrastructure management appliances that were based on NetBSD. And unfortunately, Zembu uh, imploded in the, in the dot-com implosion, and when that happened, I, I moved on to Wasabi Systems, which I think uh, is what you're referring to when you refer to the, the well-known BSD company. Were you working on their embedded stuff there? Yeah, so when I first started um, at Wasabi, it was still primarily a services company, and was doing some work on uh, you know various embedded projects, uh, and at the time there was some interest from from Intel actually to to do some iSCSI related work on some new uh, Xscale based I/O processors, and we were contracted to do a port to one of their to one of their eval boards for one of their new I/O processors. And um, I was heavily involved in that. I did, did the original port to that, uh, to that I.O. processor. And uh, we kind of continued that relationship, did more ports to more of their IOPs and their eval boards. And um, <clears throat> that was really the birth of the Wasabi iSCSI product that they now sell as, uh, as storage builder. They initially started out you know, doing this on small embedded systems, and then you know grew it to to run on sort of IA IA based appliances. I kind of assume that you're most known for your work on the Alpha port. Yeah, I did, I definitely did a lot of very publicly visible <laughs> work on the Alpha, definitely. But was your work on the Alpha because the place you were working at was going in that direction, or did you also have a personal preference for the Alpha platform? Right. Well. I've, I was never really a big fan of the Intel architecture, so you know Alpha. I liked it just from, you know, in, in one sense I liked it because it wasn't Intel, right? I, I was definitely a, a risk fan, <laughs> and uh, in a lot of ways, the Alpha is one of those um, architectures that's very clean, 
It's really easy to work with. Some parts of the architecture can be complicated, but they're it's certainly a lot easier to program on the bare metal than uh, than you know sort of an equivalent you know IA based system. But yeah, you know I think the initial push for me to look at Alpha was that you know that's where we were going as an organization was what we were looking at. But once I started working with it, I definitely I mean I kind of fell in love with it. And and what I like to I like to refer to Alpha as really sort of MIPS done right. Um, it was you know heavily influenced by the by the MIPS design, and, and it's it's very obvious if you sit down and look at the way the assembly language for each of those processors works. Um, but there are some things about the Alpha that were, um, in my opinion, a lot, a lot cleaner than the way it was done on MIPS, um, especially surrounding the, the, the part of the um, Alpha architecture called PAL code. Uh, and what PAL code does is it abstracts the sort of low-level per CPU implementation bits like you know TLB management and interrupt handling and stuff like that, kind of away from the operating system, gives you uh, kind of a more abstract view of it and also allows you to layer certain types of semantics that an operating system might need to be able to support that operating system better. So uh, the Alpha, for example, had three flavors of PAL code, one for OpenVMS, one for Unix, and one for Windows NT. And all of them provided kind of a slightly different set of semantics, like the the VMS PAL code, for example, provided a lot of the you know interlocked queue um, manipulation facilities that previously existed in the VAX instruction set, but you know were not native instructions on the Alpha. Well, those were available as PAL code routines on the Alpha, which made it a lot easier to port that operating system uh, to that platform. How open was Digital Equipment Corporation or HP? with their hardware specifications for the Alpha platform, not not only the chip, but also the associated chips that come on the actual machine. Sure. Actually, DEC was very good at, at this. Um, you know, you could go to the DEC website and download, you know, the chip documentation for the CoreLogic chipset parts and whatnot. And they were actually fairly interested in supporting open source on the Alpha platform. I mean, there, there were people inside DEC who were big Linux fans, and so there was, if not paper documentation available there was certainly um there was certainly example code available written by DEC in you know in the form of Linux um that said there was a lot of paper documentation available we did all of the uh, alpha server 8200 uh, bring up using paper documentation that we were able to get from digital without any encumbrances in fact for a very long time and i i think this might still exist we actually on the netbsd.org website have a, a pretty good library of of DEC documentation um, in the form of you know PDF or PostScript files for the various chips that are on um, in Alpha workstations, and, and one of the nice things about the Alpha platform is that, especially the PCI uh, Alpha systems, the ones that came later, they were very much like PCs in the sense you know they used PCI and they had a lot of the same types of support chips that PCs had, so there wasn't a whole lot of like secret sauce that you had to know, right? There were things like how to talk to the PCI controller, how to program the, the PCI's memory mapper and, and things like that that you had to deal with, but that documentation was all public. And the interface between the processor and that CoreLogic chipset for like you know, interrupt handling and stuff like that was all abstracted away by PAL code. So there wasn't a whole lot of secret stuff that you really had to know. So it was really nice in, in that sense. And you know there were a couple cases where we actually got a 
a new uh, a new alpha system you know we could be brought up within you know just a few days because the documentation was so good and uh, Chris Domitriou did a great job of the you know with the original port and uh, so it was really modular and really easy to drop in new stuff once you got the documentation and the hardware. Speaking of you know an alpha machine having a lot of things in common with a PC, my actual first experience with an alpha was basically as a PC back uh, in the early days of the Lightwave animation package from NewTek. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that stuff was being done on Windows NT, and uh, then it kind of went away. But <laughs> Yeah, Windows, Windows NT uh, alpha system was, you know, it was not too different from using Windows NT on a PC, except that it was held a lot faster. <laughs> I guess some of the historical benchmark tests that they had for the alphas were that the throughput was pretty good on those things. Yeah, well, the, the alpha was... Um, it was interesting their their kind of approach. I mean, they they started out kind of with going with a sort of brute force clock speed, you know, method of getting performance in their first alpha implementations, and they were just the fastest chips around because of that. Um, you know, when they first came out, like the EV4 processors and the first you know alpha workstations and servers, and then you know they started to add um, you know a lot more impl- in, you know interesting stuff in the later implementations, like the EV5 and the EV6. Corrected some you know unfortunate things that were missing in the earlier implementations, like the lack of, you know, byte load and store uh, instructions, they added those in the, you know, EV56 and the PCA56, I believe they added those. So, yeah, I mean, they, they, they definitely, uh, you know, had a good architecture to start with, um, something that was clean and simple, and, you know, it allowed them to add sort of more interesting and modern processor um, features, you know, in the later implementations of the architecture. And I, honestly, I, I really miss it, actually. It was, um, it was a you know, a, a pleasure to work with those machines, and I've, it's been painful to me to, you know, think about getting rid of some of my old alpha systems that I don't really, you know, use anymore. They, they kind of consume a lot of heat for the amount of, you know, work that you can do with them anymore these days, and, you know, the last time I moved, uh, I didn't, um, I haven't unboxed them yet, <laughs> so, but yeah, I can't, uh, I can't really bring myself to get rid of them just because they, I uh, have such fond memories of doing, you know, system programming on them, so. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people who would love to take them off your hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So at this point, would you consider the Alpha port of NetBSD to be on par feature-wise with the other you know, top architectures with NetBSD? Well, in most respects, yes. Actually, the, the Alpha was one of the first platforms to get some multiprocessor support. Um, I think it was actually the first one to really run well with multiprocessor support. A person named Bill Sommerfeld and I did a lot of work on that, and Bill was working primarily on Intel, and I was working primarily on Alpha, and we kind of had a little friendly competition going who could get it you know, to run multi-user first. Um, so that, that, you know, a lot of that initial work was done. In some ways, the Alpha port did lag behind in support for graphics, especially on the PCI systems, and that was largely due to the architecture of the X386 X-Server package and the assumptions that it made about how it was able to access the you know the actual device the 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 graphics card um, it made a lot of assumptions related to how the address space is laid out on the alpha because of the lack of byte load and store instructions on the earlier implementations devices can't pack byte wide registers right next to each other so what happens is the alpha address space for PCI is sparse so every byte is separated by another seven bytes of sort of non-responding space. And so software has to compensate for that. And in NetBSD, we have this bus space API that kind of handles that for device drivers. But in user space, which is where the X server runs, we didn't have anything like that. And 
looking back on it, I, I, I probably, as, as a portmaster, should have addressed this a little sooner and just said, yeah, okay, X386 is really out of my control. I can't really make their decisions for them. And they, if they want to program in this way, I should figure out a way to make it work, which is eventually what happened. Um, but uh, for a long time, the, the alpha port lagged behind in graphics support for the PCI systems for that very reason. You know, it was a little sad that the old turbo channel systems were better supported as workstations than the than the sort of modern faster ones were. But uh, but eventually that got rectified, and and pretty much the Alpha port has you know very good feature parity with everything else. The uh, the bus DMA and bus space APIs that we have in the FPC kernel mean that the device drivers generally are just going to work. So you know, assuming that a driver writer uses those APIs properly, all the devices generally are going to work on the Alpha platform. And you know things like the installer and um, those other things you know work um, just as well as they do on other platforms. So I would say at this point it has feature parity. And when you're working with NetBSD today, are you still working primarily on the Alpha platform or other platforms? You know, unfortunately, I'm not. I mean, I, I like I say, I still have my Alphas, but um, I haven't you know powered them on for a while. Um, I'm, I'm sad to say. I do most of my NetBSD work these days actually in uh, in emulators or virtual machines. I uh, just for because of space constraints, I don't have quite the collection of hardware that I used to have, you know, at, at my house now. So I have uh, you know a small little farm of Macs that um, that I run at home, and you know, on my Intel-based um, MacBook Pro, I I, I run the Parallels uh, virtual machine, and I'm able to run NetBSD inside of that. And um, I actually do run a, a NetBSD-based server for my wife's uh, my wife's uh, photographer, and her business uses NetBSD as its in IT infrastructure. So we, we actually do have some NetBSD, uh, you know, in production for for her company. And um, I, I still um, have some NetBSD machines that are just kind of waiting for me to finish running Ethernet down in the basement to them, and uh, I'll be able to power them up and and actually run my NetBSD-based server at home again. But yeah, I haven't uh, haven't done a lot of work on the Alpha for a while, which uh, you know it, it pains me to say. <laughs> Are you running it on any toasters? Don't have any toasters, sadly, to run NetBSD. Um, I think my wife would get upset if you know I had one of those in the kitchen. But I actually did have a fairly esoteric collection of weird little embedded stuff that I'd collected over the years, including uh, including a little device called the SurfCube, which I, I never really got around to porting NetBSD to. But it was about a two and a half by Two and a half by two and a half cube that um, you know had a little strong arm processor in it and was you know perfectly capable of running NetBSD. There was a Linux port to it. Never really got around to, to getting NetBSD to run on it though. I've got two old Silicon Graphics workstations that uh, I figure I'll probably put NetBSD on eventually. But absolutely, with SGI's announcement that IRIX and MIPS are, are going away, uh, I kind of feel bad about uh, uninstalling IRIX. Well, luckily MIPS isn't going away in general. It's um, you know, it's. I think it's the. It's either the number one or number two embedded processor. Actually, I think ARM is number one, but MIPS is probably the number two embedded processor at this point. So, MIPS as a as a as a as an architecture, thankfully, is not going to die. You did mention uh, a MacBook Pro, and I know a lot of the open source operating systems have been working on on getting things uh, running natively on that. The the what used to be a BIOS is now a little bit different. Are you hoping to devote some time to getting a native port? What's kind of nifty about the uh, about the new Intel-based Macs actually is that they're actually capable of running, you know, sort of vanilla PC operating systems pretty easily. I, I do know that that things like Linux and Solaris will run on the new Mac Pro systems for the new desktops uh, with uh, with the Apple uh, Boot Camp program. 
And what boot camp does is it provides a uh, sort of bias shim between uh, the operating system and the EFI firmware that's on the uh, that's that's running natively on the Mac, and um, actually allows the systems to boot and run, and they don't even know the difference. So I'm I'm hopeful that NetBSD will will just work in in that sense. I haven't actually had the opportunity to try it myself. Just uh, you know a little too busy with other stuff. But uh, and plus I I run the um, uh, I run within that the Parallels virtual machine, which actually I find a lot more convenient because I don't have to reboot the computer, and it's still you know fast for everything I want to do. But yeah, I I believe that uh, you know a couple people have tried it. I think there are a few things to fix. You know you do definitely have to use ACPI for system configuration on these new machines. And so there are a few few nits here and there that need to be addressed, but I don't really expect that there's going to be a whole lot of trouble. So, yeah, I mean, I, I expect that someone will get around to it. If I do, great. If not, I know someone else will. So. And besides, you know, trying to get it all working on new hardware, are there any new pieces of software that you're working on or thinking about adding to NetBSD? Yeah, I have a, kind of a couple of projects going right now. The first one is actually something that I, I recently checked into the NetBSD source tree I, I call PropLib. And what it is, is it's a replacement for the old properties API that we had in the NetBSD kernel. And the main difference that the new PropLib uh, API has is that you can have properties as a child of another property, right? And, and in fact, I actually modeled it primarily after the after the property list APIs that are in Mac OS X in the core foundation framework. And basically what it allows you to do is create string objects or number objects uh, or Boolean objects. And then you can put those objects into containers. And a container might be uh, just a plain array, which is just a, you know an ordered, ordered set of items. And then uh, the other collection is called a dictionary, which is basically an associative array, right? You you give it a key, and out comes a value, and vice versa, right? If you want to set a value, and um, one of the cool things about about Proplib is that there's this externalized representation, right? So there's a copy of the library for user space and a copy for the kernel, and in the kernel, for example, you can generate a list of properties for something. And then if you want to send those to user space, you translate them into the external representation, which is actually, um, which is actually an XML, XML text. And then you copy it across the protection boundary. And then in user space, you can reconvert that to the internal form. And so you can pass basically arbitrary data back and forth between user space and the kernel without having to worry about versioning you know, a data structure or anything like that. It's completely extensible. The only thing you have to really watch out for is if you remove a um you know a, a key from the dictionary right if you have you know say you have one version of a dictionary that um has a key called foo well if user space if the user space code on the receiving end expects foo to be there and you remove it at some point then you know that user space code might break but that generally doesn't happen and the same thing you have to look out for is changing the semantics of how the keys work but other than that, it basically allows you to add, uh, you know, kind of arbitrary properties to things and be able to pass them back and forth in what's, what's an ABI stable way. And we're actually looking at making use of this in a lot of different places in the kernel right now. The uh, the, the new Bluetooth stack that NetBSD has uh, makes use of it for configuring devices and actually keeping some persistent configuration information for them because you can save these externalized forms just as a file as well and then read them in later and then build up your internal uh, in-memory data structure out of out of a file. 
We're looking at using it for describing the, the layout of partition maps on disks and how to describe uh, the properties of a disk device so we can kind of decouple ourselves from some old legacy data structures that you know, have some limitations that we'd like to get away from. And you know, eventually we'll convert a lot of things that have traditionally used kind of like flat binary representations of things like you know, IOCTLs for configuring network interfaces and whatnot. Eventually we can convert those to property lists also so that we can you know, more easily adapt to new types of hardware that might have completely different kinds of properties than we used to handle back with just the old legacy code that was not very extensible. And it eliminates us having to version these interfaces all the time because it's sort of self-adapting self-versioning. So that's the first uh, you know, kind of major project I have right now. And that code is actually available, and it's, it's going to be in the NetBSD 4.0 release. Um, and it's in use by a few things already. Um, and then more and more things are actually adapting it kind of as we speak. I've got uh, conversations going with you know, three or four uh, other NetBSD developers you know, asking for advice on how to use this in their code. So that, that's encouraging. Then the other main project I have going on right now is... Um, kind of a background. A few years ago, I sat down and I wrote up a, a clone uh, of the Solaris uh, locking implementation. So I, I basically sat down with the Solaris internals book, read about how their mutex and RW locks, RW locks worked, and sat down and wrote a clone implementation of those. And the goal of that is to basically improve the locking facilities that we have inside the NetBSD kernel so that we can improve our multiprocessor support. One of the big barriers we have to improving multiprocessor support in NetBSD right now is the fact that the locking API we have is just not so good. It's slow, it's kind of inflexible, um, and it you know, consumes a lot of memory for the actual lock objects itself. And it requires you also to do the sort of interrupt priority manipulation manually along with, uh, along with the, the locks themselves. And that's problematic when you're working in an MP environment. You, when you're working in an MP environment, you really want to get away uh, from thinking about you know, blocking interrupts, you know, protecting code as opposed to protecting data structures. So the new... Uh, locking API uh, that um, actually the, the person who's really driving that now is uh, a fellow named uh, Andy Duran, and he's basically taken this code that I wrote some years ago and is kind of updating it and and uh, you know cleaning up some of the nits and getting ready to check it into the NetBSD source tree. And uh, I've been involved in kind of helping him review the code and answering some questions and, and helping that get polished up. And we're having kind of a, a nice thread on our uh, you know tech current mailing list about you know how how this new locking stuff should work. So kind of involved with that. Not as much as I was in the past, but but definitely involved and I'm, I'm having fun, you know, and glad that someone else has, you know, really picked it up and running with it. So NetBSD, from what I've read, strives to support all their architectures using a single code base. And a lot of these optimizations that you're looking to do either with locking and, and other stuff could perhaps be more efficient if they took advantage of architecture or processor specific features. Sure. And do you feel that uh, there's a benefit one way or the other of, you know, going very generic or shooting for architecture-specific features? Well, in the case of, uh, in the, case of the, the, the locking API that, that I just mentioned, actually, it is a generic API, but it is also able to take advantage of processor-specific optimizations. Like I say, we, we modeled the design very much after Solaris, and Sun did a very, very, very good job of... Um, and really thinking through how this should work and how you can provide a you know a generic API that also you know takes advantage of machine specific optimizations and and we've been able to do that 
Now, that said, there is some discussion these days in NetBSD about what we should do about the really old platforms, right? Some of which may not be as well supported as, as others, you know, partially due to just the, the processor being so antiquated or or maybe, you know, in, an inactive port maintainer, um, not really keeping the port up to snuff. So, you know, in those cases... You know, I feel that um, you know eventually where we'll go in NetBSD is to is to probably come up with a tiering system that says that you know some platforms are more important than others, and if advancing one platform means that an older platform might slow down a little bit, um, then that's kind of a price we're willing to pay. I don't think that we have to fork the code base. I don't think that we have to shed ports completely. In the history of NetBSD, we've only ever deleted one port, and that was because the only two machines that existed were destroyed by the by the guy who designed and built them. So, you know, we have a pretty good record of, of keeping, you know, platforms around. Um, but that said, you know, eventually if it becomes too hard to maintain something, then, you know, we may have to make the hard decision to, uh, you know, to say, sorry, this is not support anymore. Now, I'm not really in the project leadership anymore, so obviously that's not my decision to make. But you know, we have a there, there's a good group of guys uh, that uh, in the core team and NetBSD that that um, you know is, is set up to make those decisions, and we trust that they'll make the right ones. So, and changing topics a little bit here, how much does the licensing of BSD affect you, or how important is it to you? It's very important to me. I mean, it, it's no longer important to me. Professionally, since I'm I'm not directly working with NetBSD at my job anymore, but in terms of um, the way I believe software should be distributed, I feel that the BSD license actually provides developers with more freedom than the GPL does because it allows them to do more things with it than the GPL allows them to do. So, in that sense, you know, I, I believe that um, I believe in the BSD license from that perspective. Now, back when I was working with it, you know, professionally in, in a, you know, in commercial enterprises, I thought the BSD license was great because it meant that, you know, I could extend software in ways that maybe had some secret sauce in the in it, and um, you know, it meant that I didn't have to give that code away, which you know was important uh, when we were some of the projects that I, that I worked on at at uh, the various companies that I did net BSD work in. When I was doing it at at NASA. All that code was open source, so we, we, we contributed everything back to the NetBSD community. But, you know, a lot of the work I did at Zembu and a lot of the work I did at Wasabi was, was not contributed back to NetBSD for a couple of reasons, actually. Some of the things that we did to the operating system was not necessarily appropriate to be contributed back because we were doing it for specific applications. But at the same time, you know, especially at Wasabi, we had customer requirements um, in certain cases that prevented us from being able to share machine-specific code um, because maybe it was some very secret proprietary hardware. But if we had been using Linux, for example, anytime someone had you know gotten hold of a binary for that, they would have had to disclose the source code for that. And that might have meant that instead of using an open source system, that, that that hardware vendor might have gone and used you know VXWorks or something like that. So, you know, I think uh, overall it was it was good for open source to have an option for hardware developers that did not require them to disclose source code because it meant that they were indirectly supporting open source by hiring, you know, Wasabi to do work um, for that platform. So in that sense, I think that, you know, sort of the commercial friendly aspects of the BSD license were, were beneficial for everybody. 
on towards maybe career and advice to programmers. You've spent uh, a lot of time working for commercial companies being paid to code and at the uh-huh. same time contributing to a public project. That's right. And I, I assume, because I'm not in the programming field myself, that you have to be careful to kind of mark off when you're programming for NetBSD and when you're programming for your employer. Yes, you do. And, you know, unfortunately that sometimes varies by, from state to state. Well, you know, what I'm kind of imagining is that, you know, you're currently working for a uh, commercial company. And uh, at the same time, you know, you're developing things for them, and you're also developing things for NetBSD. And and how do you go about keeping track of which ideas you came up with while you were on the job and when you were eating dinner? That's a that's a tricky one. Uh, thankfully, some of the laws in the state of California kind of help me out with that. California's employment laws kind of make it so that things that you came up with you know, at dinner are, are not work for hire for your company, which is good. So in, in some ways, like I said, that, that, that can vary from state to state, and I'm lucky to be in a state that sees the value of, you know, innovating at your dinner table. So in that sense, I'm okay. One of the things that I would advise, you know, open source advocates or open source enthusiasts who are getting out of school, getting ready to, to you know, go to their first jobs is, you know, one, you know, investigate the laws in the state that you that you live in, find out what protections and rights that you have, and also um, bring it up with your prospective employers and you know discuss it. A lot of companies are not necessarily um, going to object to you know you having open source you know enthusiasms on the side. So I, I think that the most important thing is to one be educated about what your rights are and what your protections are, and then two, um, it never hurts to, to talk things out with a prospective employer. And you know, if a pr- prospective employer has a problem with it, then you know, and, and if you feel strongly enough about it, then it's good to to know up front before um, before you have to make the decision about whether or not you really want to work for them. So that's I think that's the main advice I would have for people who want to continue their open source work and you know maybe have uh, uh, concerns about whether or not that's possible with their you know employment arrangements. And that said, there's um, there are a lot of open source developers out there and a great many of them work at commercial software vendors, right? So obviously this problem is solvable because <laughs> it's out there and solved in, you know, in the real world and, and in practice. All right, and then moving on to some of your personal use of NetBSD, some of the questions I like to ask are, do you use it as a workstation? What uh, What's your environment look like, whether you use a graphical environment, editor, favorite window manager, and that wonderful stuff? Sure. You know, I uh, I actually my my main desktop machine is a Mac, so um, I I don't really use NetBSD as a desktop machine. I do um, well. I did at one time. Uh, I carried around uh, an IBM ThinkPad that ran NetBSD, and you know I just used the TWM window manager. I was I, I kind of like the minimalist uh, approach if I'm running X. Although uh, like I say I haven't I haven't run the X window system for a great many years now. So, but uh, in terms of how I use it. I, I still am very much a command line oriented guy. Uh, even when I'm programming in the Mac environment, I use you know VI, <laughs> even though you know we have this you know big wonderful uh, integrated development environment called Xcode on the Mac. Um, I actually use VI for a great uh, a great many things that I work on um, you know, at, at my job. But uh, yeah, you know when I'm when I'm using NetBSD, I'm, primarily I use NetBSD these days for developing NetBSD. Uh, like I say, I still do use it as a, as a server platform for for my wife's company. 
and uh, you know that that works great, and that's you know it's a server, so I, I'm all command line there. But when I'm using NetBSD on my uh, on my Mac in in uh, inside Parallels, I'm I'm using just you know completely you know terminal oriented stuff. So no 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 GUI. I've got I've got my Mac for that, <laughs> and that's and that's not because um, it's not because I don't think it works well on NetBSD. It's just that I don't like any of the the the, uh, the X window based uh, uh, user environments at all. Like uh, I'm not a big fan of you know GNOME or KDE. I actually find X to be really clunky. And just uh, you know, the inconsistency among apps, you know, kind of makes me grip my teeth a little bit. So I just like the Mac a lot better for, as a desktop for that reason. And what about uh, favorite programming language? Oh, C. <laughs> Although I, I I am a fan of Objective C, but definitely I, I code a lot in C. Yeah, I guess uh, you know Apple Computer and Next. Were yeah, exactly. All right. Well, are there any other topics that you want to talk about today? I guess maybe uh, uh, just in closing, I'd like to you know encourage people to you know get involved with NetBSD. Um, there are some really interesting projects that can provide a, a great opportunity, especially for for younger developers to to gain a lot of experience in you know doing kind of interesting OS work, bringing a system from kind of a legacy Unix model to a new, more modern multiprocessor type model. There's there's some momentum, you know, gaining steam again in that regard in FBSD and if people should get it, you know, try to get involved and, and say it's it's a great opportunity to learn and um put that stuff on your resume when uh when it comes time to hunt for a job as because as someone who, you know, I'm I'm a manager here at Apple and someone who, you know, interviews people when I see cool OS work or something like that on a resume, it impresses me because I know what it's like to work on that type of stuff. And no, I'm not the only manager you know, that, that hires people out in the world that does that. So I would definitely encourage people to to get involved, volunteer to do challenging and interesting work. And, uh, you know, it's a great um, a great way to sort of grow professionally uh, in, your, in, your, in your spare time. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for speaking with me today. Well, thanks uh, very much for having me. I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care now. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. Or if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 64.